It was his wisdom that he began with them upon such principles as they themselves had already some notion of, such as that of an heaven for good and hell for bad people when they died. It broke his gracious heart within him to see what floods of tears fell from the eyes of several among these degenerate savages at the first addresses which he made unto them, yea, from the very worst of them all. He was very inquisitive to learn who were the powwows, that is, the sorcerers and seducers that maintained the worship of the devil in any of their societies, and having in one of his first journeys to them found out one of those wretches, he made the Indian come unto him and said, Whether do you suppose God or Chapian, the devil, to be the author of all good? The conjurer answered, God. Upon this he added with a stern countenance, Why do you pray to the devil then? And the poor man was not able to stand or speak before him, but at last made promises of reformation. Having thus entered upon the teaching of these poor creatures, it is incredible how much toil and hardship he underwent in the prosecution of this undertaking, how many weary days and nights, how many tiresome journeys, and how many terrible dangers he had experience of. In a letter to the Honorable Mr. Winstow, he says, quote, I have not been dry night nor day from the third day of the week unto the sixth, but so traveled it, and at night pull off my boots, wring my stockings, and on with them again, and so continue. But God steps in and helps. End quote. I have considered the words of God in Second Timothy 2, verse 3, Endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ. One of his remarkable cares for these illiterate Indians was to bring them into the use of schools and books. He quickly procured the benefit of schools for them, wherein they profited so much that not only very many of them quickly came to read and write, but also several arrived unto a liberal education in our college, and one or two of them took their degree with the rest of our graduates. And for books it was his chief desire that the sacred scriptures might not in an unknown tongue be locked or hidden from them. Very hateful and hellish did the policy of popery appear to him on this account. He could not live without a Bible himself. He could have parted with all his estates sooner, and he knew it would be of more than some use unto the Indians too. He therefore with a vast labor translated the Holy Bible into the Indian language. This Bible was printed here at our Cambridge. And it is the only Bible that ever was printed in all America from the very foundation of the world. The Bible being justly made the leader of all the rest, a little Indian library quickly followed. For besides primers and grammars and some other such composures, we quickly had the practice of piety in the Indian tongue and Baxter's call to the unconverted. He also translated some of Thomas Shepard's composures and such catechisms likewise as there was occasion for. The Indians that had felt the impression of his ministry were quickly distinguished by the name of praying Indians, and these praying Indians as quickly were for a more decent way of living, and they desired a more fixed cohabitation. At several places did they now combine and settle, but the place of greatest name among their towns was that of Natick. Here it was in the year 1651. Those that had heretofore lived like the wild beasts compacted themselves into a town and applied themselves to the forming of their civil government. Our general court, notwithstanding their exact study to keep those Indians very sensible of their being subject unto the English empire, yet had allowed them their smaller courts, where they might govern their own smaller cases and concerns after their own particular modes, and might have their town's orders, if I may call them, so peculiar to themselves. With respect hereunto, Mr. Elliot, on a solemn fast, made a public vow, quote, that seeing these Indians were not prepossessed with any forms of government, he would instruct them in such a form as we had written in the word of God, that so they might be a people in all things ruled by the Lord. Accordingly, he expounded unto them the 18th chapter of Exodus, 
And then they chose rulers of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and therewithal entered into this covenant. Quote, We are the sons of Adam. We and our forefathers have a long time been lost in our sins. But now the mercy of the Lord beginneth to find us out again. Therefore the grace of Christ helping us, we do give ourselves and our children unto God to be His people. He shall rule us in all our affairs. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And the wisdom which God has taught us in His book shall guide us. O Jehovah, teach us wisdom. Send Thy Spirit in our hearts. Take us to be Thy people. And let us take Thee to be our God. Such an opinion about the perfection of the Scripture had he, that he thus expressed himself upon this occasion, quote, God will bring nations into distress and perplexity, that so they may be forced unto the Scriptures. All governments will be shaken, that men may be forced at length to pitch upon that firm foundation the word of God, end quote. The little towns of these Indians being pitched upon this foundation, they utterly abandoned that polygamy which had heretofore been common among them. They made severe laws against fornication, drunkenness, and Sabbath-breaking, and other immoralities. And they next began to lament after the establishment of a church order among them, and after the several ordinances and privileges of a church communion. The churches of New England have usually been very strict in their admissions to church fellowship, and required very signal demonstrations of a repenting and a believing soul before they thought men fit subjects to be entrusted with the rights of the kingdom of heaven. But they seem rather to augment than abate their usual strictness when the examination of the Indians was to be performed. A day was therefore set apart, which they called Natumatiknakasuk, or a day of asking questions, when the ministers of the adjacent churches assisted with all the best interpreters that could be had, publicly examined a good number of these Indians about their attainments both in knowledge and in virtue. And notwithstanding the great satisfaction then received, our churches being willing to proceed surely and therefore slowly in raising them up to a church state, which might be comprehended in our consociations, the Indians were afterwards called in considerable assemblies convened for that purpose to make open confession of their faith in God and of Christ and of the efficacy which His word had upon them for their conversion to Him, which confession being taken in writing from their mouth by able interpreters were scanned by the people of God and found much acceptance with them. I need pass no further censor upon them than what is given by my grandfather Richard Mather in an epistle of his published on this occasion says he, quote, There is so much of God's work among them as that I cannot but count it a great evil, yea, a great injury to God and His goodness for any to make light of it, to see and hear Indians opening their mouths and lifting up their hands and eyes in prayers to the living God, calling on Him by His name Jehovah in the mediation of Jesus Christ, and this for a good while together, to see and hear them exhorting one another from the word of God, to see and hear them professing the name of Christ Jesus in their own sinfulness, sure this is more than usual. And though they spoke in a language of which many of us understood but little, yet we that were present that day saw and heard them perform the duties mentioned with such grave and sober countenances, with such comely reverence in their gesture, and their whole carriage, and with such plenty of tears trickling down the cheeks of some of them, as did argue to us that they spake with the holy fear of God, and it much affected our hearts. At length was a church state settled among them. They entered, as our churches do, into an holy covenant, wherein they gave themselves first unto the Lord, and then unto one another, to attend the rules and helps, and expect the blessings of the everlasting gospel. 
and Mr. Elliot having a mission from the church of Roxborough unto the work of the Christ among the Indians conceived themselves sufficiently authorized unto the performing of all church work about them running it on Acts 13 1-4 and he accordingly administered first the baptism and then the supper of the Lord unto them we find four assemblies of praying Indians besides that of Natick in our neighborhood but why no more? Truly not because our Elliot was wanting in his offers and labors for their good, but because many of the obdurate infidels would not receive the gospel of salvation. In one of his letters, I find him given this ill report, quote, Lynn Indians are all not save one, who sometimes comes to hear the word, and the reason why they are bad is principally because their sacum is not and careth not to pray unto God. Indeed, the Sachems or the princes of the Indians generally did all they could that their subjects might not entertain the gospel, the devils having the Sachems on their side, thereby kept their possession of the people too. Their Pawas did much to maintain the interest of the devils in this wilderness. Those children of the devil and enemies of all righteousness did not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord. But their Sachems did more towards it, for they would presently raise a storm of persecution upon any of their vassals that should pray unto the eternal God. The ground of this conduct in them was a fear that religion would abridge them of the tyranny which they had been used to. They always liked the devil, held their people in a most absolute servitude, and ruled by no law but by their will, which left the poor slaves nothing that they could call their own. They now suspected that religion would put a bridle upon such usurpations and oblige them to a more equal and humane way of government. They therefore, some of them, had the impudence to address the English that no motions about the Christian religion might ever be made unto them. And Mr. Elliot, sometimes in the wilderness, without the company or assistance of any other Englishmen, has been treated in a very threatening and barbarous manner by some of these tyrants. But God inspired him with so much resolution as to tell them, quote, I am about the work of the great God, and my God is with me, so that I fear neither you nor all the sachems in the country. I'll go on, and do you touch me if you dare. End quote upon which the stoutest of them have shrunk and fell before him. And one of them he at length conquered by preaching unto him a sermon upon the temptations fetched from the kingdoms and glories of the world. The little kingdoms and glories of the great men among the Indians was a powerful obstacle to the success of Mr. Elliot's ministry. And it is observable that several of those nations which thus refused the gospel quickly afterwards were so devil-driven as to begin an unjust and bloody war upon the English, which issued in their speedy and utter extirpation from the face of God's earth. It was particularly remarked in Philip, the ringleader of the most calamitous war that ever they made upon us, our Eliot made a tender of the everlasting salvation to that king. But that Philip entertained it with a contempt and anger. After the Indian mode of joining signs with words, he took hold of a button of Mr. Eliot's coat, adding, quote, that he cared for his gospel just as much as he cared for that button, end quote. A terrible ruin soon came upon that woeful creature and upon all his people. It was not long before the hand which now writes, upon a certain occasion, took off the jaw from the blasphemous exposed skull of that Leviathan. And Samuel Lee is now pastored to an English congregation, sounding the praises of heaven upon that very spot of ground where Philip and his Indians were lately worshipping the devil. Sometimes the more immediate hand of God by cutting off the principal opposers of the gospel among the Indians made way for Mr. Elliot's ministry. As I remember, he relates that an association of profane Indians near our Weymouth set themselves to deter and seduce the neighbor Indians from the right ways of the Lord. But God quickly sent the smallpox among them, which like a great plague soon swept them away and thereby engaged the rest unto himself. 
I need only to add that one attempt made by the devil to prejudice the pagans against the gospel had something in it extraordinary. While Mr. Elliot was preaching Christ unto the other Indians, a scepter appeared unto a prince of the eastern Indians in a shape that had some resemblance of Mr. Elliot or of an English minister pretended to be the Englishman's God. The scepter commanded him to forbear the drinking of rum and to observe the Sabbath day and to deal justly with his neighbors. All which things had been inculcated in Mr. Elliot's ministry. Promising therewithal unto him that if he did so at his death his soul should ascend unto a happy place, otherwise descend unto miseries. But the apparition all the while never said one word about Christ, which was the main subject of Mr. Elliot's ministry. The Sachem received such an impression from the apparition that he dealt justly with all men except in the bloody tragedies and cruelties he afterwards committed on the English in our wars. He kept the Sabbath day like a fast, frequently attending in our congregations. He would not meddle with any rum, though usually his countrymen had rather die than undergo such a piece of self-denial. At last, and not long since, this scepter appeared again unto this pagan, requiring him to kill himself, and assuring him that he should revive in a day or two, never to die any more. He therefore upon divers times attempted it, but his friends very carefully prevented it. However, at length he found an opportunity and hanged himself. It is easy to see what a stumbling block was here laid before the miserable Indians. The same spirit which acted Mr. Elliot quickly inspired others elsewhere to prosecute the work of rescuing the poor Indians out of their worse than Egyptian darkness in which evil angels had been so long preying upon them. One of these was the godly and gracious Richard Bourne, who soon saw a great effect of his labors. In the year 1666, Mr. Elliot, accompanied by the governor and several magistrates and ministers at Plymouth Colony, procured a vast assembly at Mashapog, and there a good number of Indians made confessions touching the knowledge and belief and regeneration of their souls with such understanding and affection as was extremely grateful to the pious auditory. Yet such was the strictness of the good people in this affair that before they would countenance the advancement of these Indians unto church fellowship, they ordered their confessions to be written and sent unto all the churches in the colony for their approbation. But so approved they were that afterwards the messengers of all the churches, given their presence and consent, they became a church and chose Mr. Bourne to be their pastor, who was then by Mr. Elliot and Mr. Cotton ordained unto that office over them. From hence Mr. Elliot and Mr. Cotton went over to an island called Martha's Vineyard, where God had so succeeded the honest labors of some, and particularly of the Mayhews, as that a church was gathered. This church, after fasting and prayer, chose one Hyakums to be their pastor, John Takanash, an able and discreet Christian, to be their teacher, Joshua Mama Cheeks, and John Nanasol to be ruling elders, and these were then ordained by Mr. Elliot and Mr. Cotton thereunto. Distance of habitation caused this one church by mutual agreement afterwards to become two, the pastor and one ruling elder taking one part, and the teacher and one ruling elder another. And at Nantucket, another adjacent island, was another church of Indians quickly gathered who chose an Indian John Gibbs to be their minister. These churches are so exact in their admission and so solemn in their discipline and so serious in their communion that some of the Christian English in the neighborhood who would have been loth to have mixed with them in a civil relation yet have gladly done it in a sacred one. It is needless for me to repeat what my father has written about the other Indian congregations only there having been made mention of one Hayakums, I am willing to annex a passage or two concerning that memorable Indian, 
That Indian was a very great instrument of bringing his pagan and wretched neighbors to a saving acquaintance with our Lord Jesus Christ. And God gave him the honor not only of so doing much for some, but also of suffering much from others of those unhappy savages. Once particularly, this Hayakums received a cruel blow from an Indian prince, which if some English had not been there might have killed him for his praying unto God. And afterwards he gave this account of his trial in it, said he, I have two hands. I had one for injuries and the other for God. While I did receive wrong with the one, the other laid the greater hold on God. The Pawas did use to hector and abuse the praying Indians at such a rate as terrified others from joining with them. But once when those witches were bragging they could kill all the praying Indians if they would, Hayakums replied, Let all the Pawas in the island come together. I'll venture myself in the midst of them. Let them use all their witchcrafts. With the help of God I'll tread upon them all. By this courage he silenced the Pawas. At the same time also he heartened the people at such a rate as was truly wonderful. Nor could any of them ever harm this eminent confessor afterwards, nor indeed any proselyte which had been by his means brought home to God. Yea, it was observed after this that they rather killed than cured all such of the heathen as would yet make use of their enchantments for help against their sicknesses. So little was the soul of our Eliot infected with any envy, as that he longed for nothing more than fellow laborers. He made cries both to God and man, for more to be thrust forth into the Indian harvest. And indeed it was an harvest of so few secular advantages and encouragements, that it must be nothing less than a divine thrust, which could make any to labor in it. He saw the answer of his prayers and the generous and vigorous attempts made by several other most worthy preachers of the gospel to gospelize our perishing Indians. At the writing of my father's letter there were four, but the number of them increases apace amongst us. At Martha's Vineyard, old Mr. Mayhew and several of his sons or grandsons have done very worthily for the souls of the Indians. There were fifteen years ago, by computation, about fifteen hundred seals of their ministry upon that one island. In Connecticut, Mr. Fitch has made noble essays towards the conversion of the Indians, but I think the prince he has to deal with all, being an obstinate infidel, gives unhappy rimorous to the successes of his ministry. And godly Mr. Pearson has in that colony deserved well, if I mistake not, upon the same account. In Massachusetts, we see at this day Mr. Daniel Cookin, Mr. Peter Thatcher, Mr. Grindale Rawson, all of them hard at work to turn these poor creatures from darkness into light and from Satan into God. In Plymouth, we have the most active Mr. Samuel Treat laying out himself to save this generation. And there is one Mr. Tupper who uses his laudable endeavors for the instruction of them. It is my relation to him that causes me to defer to the last place a mention of Mr. John Cotton, who addresses the Indians in their own language with an admirable dexterity and has done great service to them. Having told my reader that the second edition of the Indian Bible was wholly of his correction and amendment, I shall only add this remarkable story. Mr. Cotton, accompanied by the governor and major general and sundry persons of quality, made a journey to the nation of Indians in the neighborhood with a free offer of the words whereby they might be saved. The prince took time to consider of it, and at length he told them he did not accept the tender which they made him. Then they took their leaves of him, not without first giving him this plain and short admonition, quote, If God have any mercy for your miserable people, he will quickly find a way to take you out of the way. It was presently after this that this prince going forth to a battle against other nations of Indians was killed in the fight. 
And the young prince being in his minority, the government fell into the hands of protectors who favored the interest of the gospel. Mr. Cotton, being advised of it, speedily and prosperously renewed the tidings of an eternal savior to the savages who have ever since attended upon his ministry. And the young Sachem, after he came to age, expressed his approbation of the Christian religion, especially when a while since he was lay a dying of a tedious distemper and would keep reading of Mr. Baxter's call to the unconverted with floods of tears in his eyes while he had any strength to do it. Such as these are the persons whom our Elliot left engaged in the Indian work, and they are so indefatigable in their labors as that the most equal judges must acknowledge them worthy of much greater salaries than they are generally contented with. Some of the Indians quickly built for themselves good and large meeting houses, and some of the English were helpful to them upon this account, among whom I ought particularly to mention that learned pious and charitable gentleman Samuel Sewell, who had his own charge built a meeting house for one of the Indian congregations. As to their worship, the very name of praying Indians will assure us that the prayer is one of their devotions. Be sure that they could not be our Eliot's disciples if it were not so. They study the words of God in their own sins and wants, and can pray with much pertinence and enlargement. Their preaching has also much of Eliot, and therefore you may be sure of much scripture but perhaps more of the Christian than of the scholar in it. As for holy days, our Eliot would not persuade his Indians to any stated ones, but he taught them to set apart days both for fasting and prayer and for praise, when there should be extraordinary occasions for them, and they performed the duties of these days with a very laborious piety. One party of the Indians, long since, of their own accord, kept a day of supplication together, wherein one of them discoursed upon Psalm 66, verse 7, he rules by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. And when one asked him afterwards what was the reason of their keeping such a day, they replied, It was to obtain five mercies of God. First, that God would slay the rebellion of their hearts. Next, that they might love God and, and one another. Thirdly, that they might withstand the temptations of wicked men so that they might not be drawn back from God. Fourthly, that they might be obedient unto the counsels and commands of their rulers. Fifthly, that they might have their sins done away by the redemption of Jesus Christ. And lastly, that they might walk in the good ways of the Lord. Our cautious Eliot was far from the opinion of those who have thought it warrantable to adopt some heathenish usages into the worship of God for the more easy and speedy gaining of the heathen to that worship. He would not gratify them with the Samaritan sort of mixed worship, and he imagined as well he might that the Apostle Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians had enough in it forever to deter us all from such unhappy temporizing. It is too usual with old men that when they are past work they are least sensible of their inabilities and incapacities, and can scarce endure to see another succeed in them in their office. But our Eliot was of a temper quite contrary thereunto, for finding many months before his death that he had not strength enough to edify his congregation with public prayers and sermons, he importuned his people with some impatience to call another minister, professing himself unable to die with comfort until he could see a good successor ordained, settled, and fixed among them. For this cause he also cried mightily unto the Lord Jesus, our ascended Lord, that he would give such a gift unto Roxbury, and he sometimes called his whole town together to join with him in a fast for such a blessing. As a return of their supplications, our Lord quickly bestowed upon them a person young in years, but old in discretion, gravity, and experience, Mr. Nehemiah Walter, 
who being by the unanimous vote and choice of the church there, became the pastor of Roxbury, immediately found the venerable Eliot embracing and cherishing of him with the tender affections of a father. And thus he for a year or two before his death could scarce be persuaded unto any public service, but humbly pleaded what none but he would ever have said. Quote, it would be a wrong to the souls of the people for him to do anything among them when they were supplied so much to their advantage otherwise. End quote. But although he dismissed himself, as one so near to the age of ninety might well have done, from his public labors, yet he would not give over his endeavors, and a more private severe to do good unto all, for he had always been an enemy to idleness. His little diary shows there was no day without a line. A young boy in the neighborhood had, in his infancy, fallen into a fire so as to burn himself into a perfect blindness. But this boy, having grown to some bigness, a good old man took him home to his house and taught him. And the boy so profited that in a little time he could repeat many whole chapters verbatim. And if any other in reading missed a word, he would mind them of it. He had once a pleasant fear that the old saints of his acquaintance, especially those two dearest neighbors of his, Cotton of Boston and Mather of Dorchester, who were got safe to heaven before him, would suspect him to be gone the wrong way because he stayed so long behind him. For many months before he died, he would often tell us, quote, that he was shortly going to heaven and that he would carry a deal of good news thither with him. He said he would carry tidings to the old founders of New England who were now in glory, that church work was yet carried on amongst us, that the number of our churches was continually increasing, and that the churches were still kept as big as they were by the daily additions of those that shall be saved. Quote. He used most affectionately to be well the death of all useful men. Yet if one brought him the notice of such a thing with any despondencies or said, O oh, sir, such an one is dead, what shall we do? He would answer, he would answer Well, but God lives, Christ lives, the old Savior of New England yet lives, and he will reign until all his enemies are made his footstool. The last thing that ever our Eliot put off was the care of all the churches, which he was continually solicitous about. When the churches in New England were under a very uncomfortable prospect, by the advantage which men that sought their ruin had obtained against them, God put it into their heart of one well known in these churches to take a voyage into England, that he might by his meditations at Whitehall divert the storms that were then impending over us. It is not easy to express what affection our aged Eliot prosecuted this undertaking with, and what thanksgiving he rendered unto God for any hopeful successes of it. But because one of the last times, and for aught I know the last of his ever setting pen to paper in the world was upon this occasion, I shall transcribe a short letter which was written by the shaking hand that it heretofore by writing deserved so well from the church of God. It was written to the person that was engaging for us, and thus it ran, quote, Reverend and beloved Mr. Increase Mather, I cannot write. Read Nehemiah 2, verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobijah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Let thy blessed soul feed full and fat upon this and other scriptures. All other things I leave to other men, and rest your loving brother, John Eliot. The following speeches of some of the Indians formerly published by Mr. Elliot were delivered to me by a friend that brought them with him from Boston and New England, and are so great a rarity that it was with difficulty he procured them in New England where they were printed. Neither was there a copy of them to be found in London. Mr. Elliot begins thus, Here be but a few of the dying speeches and counsels of such Indians as died in the Lord. 
It isn't humbling to me that there be no more. It was not in my heart to gather them. But Major Gookins, hearing some of them rehearsed, he first moved that Daniel should gather them in the language as they were spoken, and that I should translate them into English. And here is presented what was done that way. These things are printed not so much for publication as to save charge of writing out of copies for those that did desire them. John Eliot. Number one, Wobbin. He was the first that received the gospel. Our first meeting was at his house. The next time we met, he had gathered a great company of his friends to hear the word in which he had been steadfast. When we framed ourselves in order, in way of government, he was chosen a ruler of fifty. He had approved himself to be a good Christian in church order and in civil order. He had approved himself to be a zealous, faithful, and steadfast ruler to his death. His speech is as followeth, quote, I now rejoice, though I be now a dying, great is my affliction in this world, but I hope that God doth so afflict me, only to try my praying to God in this world, whether it be true and strong or not. But I hope God doth gently call me to repentance and to prepare to come unto Him. Therefore He layeth on me great pain and affliction. Though my body be almost broken by sickness, yet I desire to remember Thy name. O my God, until I die, I remember those words, Job 19, verses 23 to 28. O that my words were now written. O that they were printed in a book that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I desire not to be troubled about manners of this world. A little I am troubled. I desire you all, my brethren, and you, my children, do not greatly weep and mourn for me in this world. I am now almost dying, but see that you strongly pray to God, and do you also prepare and make ready to die, for every one of you must come to dying. Therefore confess your sins, every one of you, and believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that which is written in the book of God. Consider truly and repent and believe, then God will pardon all your great and many sins. God can pardon all your sins as easily as one, for God's free mercy and glory do fill all the world. God will in no wise forget those that in this world do sincerely repent and believe. Verily, this is a love, O my God. Therefore, I desire that God would do this for me, though in my body I am full of pain. As for those that died afore we prayed to God, I have no hope about them now. I believe that God has called us for heaven, and and there in heaven are many believers' souls abiding. Therefore, I pray you do not overmuch grieve for me when I die in this world. But make yourselves ready to die and follow me, and there we shall see each other in eternal glory. In this world we live but a short while. Therefore we must always be preparing that we may be ready to die. Therefore, O my God, I humbly pray, receive my soul by thy free mercy in Jesus Christ, my Savior and Redeemer. For Christ has died for me, and for all my sins in this world committed. My great God has given me long life, and therefore I am now willing to die. Oh, Jesus Christ, help my soul. I believe that my sickness doth not arise out of the dust, nor cometh it peradventure, but God sendeth it. Job 5, verse 6 and 7. By this sickness God calleth me to repent of all my sins and to believe in Christ. Now I confess myself a great sinner. Oh, pardon me and help me for Christ's sake. Lord, thou callest me with a double calling, sometimes by prosperity and mercy, sometimes by affliction. And now thou callest me by sickness, but let me not forget thee, O my God. 
I give my soul to Thee, O my Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Pardon all my sins and deliver me from hell. O do Thou help me against death, and then I am willing to die. And when I die, O help me and receive me. End quote. And so saying, he died. Number two, P.M. Bohu. He was the second man next to Waban that received the gospel. He brought many with him to the second meeting at Waban's house. When we formed them into government, he was chosen a ruler of ten. When the church at Hannah Semet was gathered, he was called to be a ruler in that church. When that was scattered by the war, they came back to Natick Church. So many as survived, and at Natick he died. His speech was as followeth, quote, I rejoice, and I am content and willing to take up my sorrows and sickness. Many are the years of my life. Long have I lived, therefore now I look to die. But I desire to prepare myself to die well. I believe God's promise that He will forever save all that believe in Jesus Christ. O Lord Jesus, help me. Deliver me and save my soul from hell by Thine own blood, which Thou hast shed for me, when Thou didst die for me and for all my sins. Now help me sincerely to confess all my sins. Oh, pardon all my sins. I now beg in the name of Jesus Christ to pardon for all my sins. For Thou, O Christ, art my Redeemer and Deliverer. Now I hear God's word, and I do rejoice in what I hear. Though I do not see, yet I hear and rejoice that God has confirmed for us a minister in this church of Natick. He is our watchman, and all you people deal well with him, both men, women, and children. Hear him every Sabbath day, and make strong your prey unto God, and all you of Hasanamasu. Restore your church and pray unto God there. O Lord, help me to make ready to die, and then receive my soul. I hope I shall die well by the help of Jesus Christ. O Jesus Christ, deliver and save my soul in everlasting life in heaven, for I do hope thou art my Savior, O Jesus Christ. End quote. So he died. Old Jacob. He was among the first that prayed to God. He had so good a memory that he could rehearse a whole catechism, both questions and answers. When he gave thanks at meat, he would sometimes only pray the Lord's Prayer. His speech is as followeth, quote, My brethren, now hear me a few words. Stand fast, all you people, in your praying to God according to that word of God, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Watch ye stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men and be strong in the Lord, especially you that are rulers and teachers. Fear not the face of men when you judge in the court together. Help one another. Agree together. Be not divided one against another. Remember the parable of ten brethren that held together. They could not be broken nor overcome. But when they divided one against another, then they were easily overcome. And all you that are rulers, judge right judgment. For you do not judge for man, but for God in your court. Second Chronicles 19, verse 6 and 7. Therefore judge in the fear of God. Again you that are judges, see that you have not only human wisdom, for man's wisdom is in many things contrary to the wisdom of God, counting it to be foolishness. Do not judge that right which only seemeth to be right, and consider Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Judge right, and God will be with you when you so do. Again I say to you all the people, make strong your praying to God, and be constant in it. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. Pray continually. Again, lastly, I say to you, Daniel, our minister, be strong in your work, as Matthew 5, verse 14 and 16. You must bring light into the world and make it to shine that all may see your good work and glorify your heavenly Father. Every preacher that maketh strong his work doth bring precious pearls, as Matthew 13, verse 12. 
and thou shalt have everlasting life in so doing. I'm near, I'm near to death. I have lived long enough. I am about 90 years old. I now desire to die in the presence of Christ. O Lord, I commit my soul to Thee. End quote. Number four, Nehemiah. This very hopeful young man going out to hunt with a companion, he fell out with him and stabbed him mortally and killed him. A little was gathered up, spoke by him as followeth, quote, I'm ready to die now, but knew not of it. Even now when I went out of my door, I was only going to hunt, but a wicked man hath killed me. I see that the word is true. He that is well today may be dead tomorrow. He that laughed yesterday may sorrow today. My misery overtook me in the woods. No man knoweth the day and time when his misery cometh. Now I desire patiently to take my cross in misery. I am but a man and must feel the cross. O Christ Jesus, help me. Thou art my Redeemer, my Savior, and my Deliverer. I confess myself a sinner. Lord Jesus, pardon all my sins by Thy own blood when Thou diest for us. O Christ Jesus, save my soul from hell. Receive my soul into heaven. O help me. Help me. So he died. The wicked murderer is fled. John Awasamug Sr. He was a young man when the Indians began to pray to God. He did not at the present join with them, but would say to me, I will first see into it, and when I understand it, I will answer you. He did after a while enter into the civil covenant, becoming one of the community, but was not entered into the church covenant before he died. He was propounded to join to the church, but was delayed, he being of quick passionate temper. Some witty litigations prolonged it until his sickness. But had he recovered, the church was satisfied to have received him. He finished well. His speech is as followeth, quote, Now I must shortly die. I desired that I might live. I sought for medicines to cure me. I went to every English doctor at Dadham, Medfield, Concord, but none could cure me in this world. But, O oh, Jesus Christ, do thou heal my soul. Now I am in great pain. I have no hope of living in this world. A whole year I have been afflicted. I cannot go to the public Sabbath worship to hear God's word. I did greatly love to go to the Sabbath worship. Therefore I now say to you, all men, women, and children love much and greatly to keep the Sabbath. I have been now long hindered from it, and therefore now I find the worth of it. I say unto you all, my sons and children, do not go into the woods among non-praying people, but abide constantly at Natick. You, my kindred, strongly pray to God, love and obey the rulers, and submit unto their judgment. Hearing diligently your ministers, be obedient to Major Gookins and to Mr. Elliot and to Daniel. I am now almost dead, and I exhort you strongly to love each other, be at peace, and be ready to forgive each other. I desire now rightly to prepare myself to die, for God has given me warning a whole year by my sickness. I confess I am a sinner. My heart was proud, and thereby all my sins were in my heart. I knew that by birth I was a sachem. I've got oxen and cart and plow like an Englishman, and by all these things my heart was proud. Now God calleth me to repentance by my sickness this whole year. O Christ Jesus, help me that according as I make my confession, so through thy grace I may obtain pardon of all my sins. For thou, Lord Jesus, didst die for us to deliver us from sin. I hear and believe that thou hast died for many. Therefore I desire to cast away all worldly hindrances, my lands and goods. I cast them by. They cannot help me now. I desire truly to prepare to die, my sons. I hope Christ will help me to die well. Now I call you my sons, but in heaven we shall all be brethren. This I learned in the Sabbath worship. All All miseries in this world upon believers shall have only joy and blessing in Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, O Christ Jesus, help me in all my miseries and deliver me, for I trust in thee and save my soul in the heavenly kingdom. Now behold me and look upon me, who am dying. End quote. So he died. Chapter 5, Section 2 Much of the spirit of Christianity appearing in many young persons. Former editions of this account made useful. Professor Frank's letter, January 21, 1700. This chapter is the success of the gospel in England. Since the pious education of our youth is a matter of the greatest importance to us both in church and state, and since the whole hope of improving the next age and of continuing the mercies of God with this depends upon it, it cannot be unacceptable to any sober person to peruse a brief account of that which our God hath done for us in this respect, to whom alone be the praise and glory of the whole. It is the observation of many serious and judicious persons that within the compass of a few years past there has appeared much of the genuine spirit of Christianity in many young persons among us, whose pious disposition together with their humble and inoffensive behavior have occasioned the praises of God in the mouths of many pious people, for they cannot but look on this blooming piety of these orthodox and sober persons as a very seasonable blessing of God to excite new spirits in the degenerate professors of our holy religion to antidote those damnable heresies and to check that exorbitant wickedness which hath appeared with great impudence in these latter days. When I first applied my mind to draw up a brief account of these things, being led thereto by sundry moving considerations, I advised with several divines and others about it, by whom it was generally concluded to be a work that might prove serviceable to the common interest of religion and might revive the languishing state of it amongst us, which, as it is the only end I propose hereby, so indeed it is a consideration that needs no other to second it. For I know nothing more desirable in this world than to invigorate a hearty concern for religion in it. And when this brief narrative was drawn up and perused by several persons, who were acquainted with the most hidden springs and motions of these societies, they attested the justice and equality of it, in particular the late Reverend Dr. Hornick, who had a very perfect knowledge of them, and indeed was an eminent friend, or rather father to them, from their first rise to the day of his death. In a discourse I had with him a little before his decease, was pleased to give this public testimony of it, quote, that it was a very faithful and modest account of the whole manner, end quote, adding that at the first appearance of these societies, they were looked upon with suspicion and dislike by many of our superiors, who now, said he, upon a fuller view of them, do not only think them fit to be tolerated, but worthy to be encouraged, concluding with his prayer, in that pathetic and heavenly manner which was usual to him, that God would bless and prosper these beginnings of Reformation. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, 
Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.